Welcome to another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast. On this show, we take a relational approach to turning readers into fans by using expensive words based on our emotions to write compelling stories. This way, instead of finding customers who read, we find friends and fans who will go on any storytelling path with us as we walk down the winding roads that make up our author journeys. Get ready to learn more about writing the story of your heart right now on Writing Expensive Words. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast, live on YouTube or listening through any of your favorite podcast uh, softwares. (laughs) Today, we are going to talk about The Queen's Gambit, episode three, part three. And remember, this is going to be full of spoilers. So if you want to watch the episodes without anything, any knowledge, watch episode three first before you listen or watch this episode. Listen to slash watch this episode. Uh, Today, we are going to talk about foils because there is a really good one in this in part three. And we're also going to talk about foreshadowing again, if you can't tell already. Foreshadowing is a huge part of what makes the Queen's Gambit successful. So I have a lot of notes. I'm really excited about this episode because we finally get to meet one of the most important characters in person. Some other crazy things happen. A lot changes for Beth. And uh, let's go ahead and get started. Okay, so this episode starts with a flashback. And remember, flashbacks can be used for a lot of reasons. In this case, we're going to see a flashback of a time when Beth is out in uh, a field with her mom that's next to a lake, and her mom strips down and goes swimming. And you see Beth, and she's screaming like, Mom, Mom, because her mom has not come up for a breath. And finally, we see her mother, her real mother, emerge and stand on top of the platform. And then we see her, once she swam back, swum back, that she's holding Beth and kissing her and comforting her. And uh, the whole time that that scene is going on, there is a very pronounced ticking sound. And so what I believe that this scene is showing you is that it's just a matter of time. And we know that Beth's mom has a lot of mental uh, illness problems going on, right? But, and we we kind of are like, uh, is that going to happen to Beth? So that is where the episode starts out, which is great because we see this progression as the episode unfolds of what is going on with Beth and her mental attitude and all of the changes that are happening. So once again, a flashback in this case, I would say is used for foreshadowing to launch you forward, to pump up the sense of drama and to make you remember you care about Beth. You care what happens to her. And when she's upset, you're upset, which is exactly what you want when you're writing a story. You want a protagonist that makes the the reader feel things. Okay, so... We see the story is going to pick up right where it left off. Beth and Alma are checking into the hotel in Cincinnati, which in the last episode, uh, that's what they were talking about, is going to Cincinnati, getting <laughs> getting Beth out of school, right? Which is kind of ridiculous because, and as we, it de- is demonstrated inside this episode, Beth is so much smarter than everyone else like especially she's definitely like way past what she would be learning in school which is why the teachers always like i don't know what to do with you which is how she ended up 
dusting the erasers and being in the basement basement with Mr. Scheibel anyway because she already knew how to do all of the math. So, um, you know, to me that's funny, you know, that they're like, oh, she has a mono, oh, she has a cold, this and that to get her out of school. When they, She doesn't need to be in school. She could have just tested out, I'm sure, and got her GED. But, you know, Alma's not really thinking that far ahead, and also she just doesn't really care because she knows that Beth uh, can function way above what all the other kids are doing. So we see them check in in Cincinnati, and we have these little moments where Beth is smiling, which we don't see her smile a lot in the series at all, especially up until this point. And uh, we see her doing things that kind of show that maybe she's been able to reclaim some of the childhood that was stripped away from her when she went into the Methuen house, because when they get into the hotel... And, you know, uh, Alma's like, I asked them for a pleasant room, and I think that's what they've given me. And you see Beth smile, and then she launches herself onto the bed and bounces on the bed. And that is something that kids do. Adults don't normally bounce on the bed. Uh, From my personal experience, I would be afraid to, like, throw my back out because I have back problems. But so we see this little piece of, yes, Beth is getting to actually live again. She's getting to have some of those pieces of childhood that she had taken away from her. And then, bum ba da da we finally get to see the famous Benny Watts in person. And remember that Benny Watts was already shown to us in a magazine article in the Chess Review, and that magazine is, like, really prominent in this episode, okay? Which is fun because it was, like, a point of focus for Beth for such a long time, and we see that really thoroughly in episode number two. Okay, so Beth runs into Mike and Matt in Cincinnati, which anytime Mike and Matt come on the screen, I'm like, yes, they're the twins, They're very likable. The fact that they like her earns her a lot of street cred, a lot of likability credits, let's say, from the audience because they're so nice. They're polite. They are just like they cuss just like the right amount, the perfect amount to make you believe that they are uh, freshman college guys. (laughs) And so they see her and um, it's really sweet because Alma's like, hey, aren't you going to introduce me to your friends? And they all meet and then they go to dinner together. So sweet. And Mike and Matt are also prominent characters in this story. In fact, the only character that we don't have in the story, uh, well, let's say two. The two characters we don't have in this episode that are really important to the story are Beltic and, um, oh my gosh, Borgov. <laughs> I was like, what? I don't want to say his name wrong. So um, that's why I have notes, people. That's why it's good to keep notes, because there are a lot of names in this and a lot of people. And yeah, so uh, we see Mike and Matt, which is really fun. And then um, because Benny Watts is not competing in the Cincinnati match, we see that Beth is able to win. And she gets very, you know, she feels accomplished. And Alma's like, you know... Beth figures out exactly how much money they have for a profit because Alma's keeping track of all it. And uh, at the end of that interaction, Alma says, like, really sheepishly, hey, you know, why don't I have 10% as an agent's commission because she's finding these things and arranging these 
uh, places to stay for Beth to be able to compete. And Beth says, mm, and she counters with 15%, and she tells her exactly how much that would be. And you see Alma smile a little bit, and it's really sweet how they're developing this relationship, even though at the same time they're sending you a lot of warning signals, and we're going to get into that in this episode as well. So uh, Beth is mentioned in Chess Review, and we also see that Beth is starting to call Alma mother. She says, yes, mother, um, and Alma keeps getting Beth out of school. But one of the things you'll notice in this episode, and even Beth points it out, and I'm going to talk about that, uh, is that Alma is, like, drinking a ton. Like, she's drinking on the plane. She's drinking in their room. She's drinking every time they go out to dinner. Like, more than one drink, and she's always asking for more drinks. She's, like, pointing at her wine glass, right? And so this is foreshadowing, and I don't want to give away what all of this is pointing to, and you might be like, alcoholism, Kristen. No, it's not. That's the thing I really love is that there's all this foreshadowing and it doesn't go where you think it's going to go. It's going to go to a bad place. Okay. I'll say that. But um, it's not going to take you to the typical place you would think that this pattern shows, which is really refreshing. Okay. So while Beth is looking at it, at it, you know, the chess review, or maybe Alma's looking at it, one of them's looking at it, and you see that there's an article about Vasily Borgov, and Beth says that uh, she needs to learn Russian. And you can see Alma's kind of apprehensive. She's being a mother, right? She's taken on that mothering role where she's like, well, aren't there going to be, like, older people in that class, and especially older boys? I think Alma's catching on to the fact that Beth is starting to have this sexual curiosity and attraction, which we saw in the second episode where she's staring at the bully making out with this guy in the stacks. Oh, no. I mean, high schools don't have stacks in the library, but in the library. So we see that, and, uh, you know, it's also foreshadowing something that's going to happen in this episode. Like I said, Queen's Gambit has, like, the most amount of jam-packed foreshadowing, but the moments are meaningful. So you don't, you're, it's not like you're like, ah, stop foreshadowing. You're like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? I think I have an idea, but I can't wait to find out. Which is exactly the kind of tension you want to carry your reader through your story. Okay, so we then we see that Beth gets interviewed for Time Magazine uh, and this interaction is one of the most important interactions in the whole series. I couldn't wait to write about it because, and I said we we're going to talk about this, the reporter for the Times is a foil for Beth in that she's all the things that Beth isn't. And not only does this give us a better clue of who Beth is, it also shows us that Beth is in that group of otherdom. She is not like the rest of society, which is going to come into play as we get to the end of this episode. So um, when the woman, the reporter, let's just call her the reporter, is asking Beth about chess, you know, at some point, Beth is just like, you know, because she's like, oh, it's so competitive and there's boys, etc. And Beth is like, well, chess is beautiful. And you can see that she has a different relationship with the game that a lot of other people do, and especially this reporter who's just like, what? Right. Um, but so we see that uh, 
The Times reporter is projecting a lot of her own feelings and assumptions onto Beth, and Beth resists that. And so this is the way that the writers are going to show us that Beth is different without telling us that she's different, which is so clever. And, oh, man, they just do it in such a great way. Um, And this is, you know, that I wrote down a quote because I couldn't. It was so good. So she's talking to the reporter and the reporter's like, well, do you think the king is like your father and the and the queen is like the mother and the king uh, is like the queen? And Beth just kind of looks at her like, what kind of crazy drugs are you on? Um, And she says that she was first drawn to the board. Beth says, I was first drawn to the board. It's a world of just 64 squares. I can control it, dominate it. And it's predictable. So if I get hurt, I only have myself to blame. Dang, that's so good. That's such like that tells us so much about Beth while it is showing us an interaction between her and another character. And so her life, Beth's life has been completely out of control so far. And that's why the chessboard captured her attention. It shows us Beth's motivation to feel in control of something because everything's out of control in her life. And the reporter asked Beth if she's heard of apophenia, which I mentioned not by name in the first episode because I was like, ah, what's it called? I can't remember. And apophenia is uh, the finding of patterns or meanings where other people don't. But there's also this duality to apophenia where you can find meaning where other people don't, but also you can ascribe meaning when there is none. And the reporter brings it up and they have this conversation um, where the show writer, who is Scott Frank, by the way, uh, has explained something to the viewer about Beth in an effortless way because it seems natural for the reporter to bring up apophenia to Beth after what Beth just said about the chessboard and controlling it and the pattern, right? And I also wanted to do an honorable mention to Scott Frank, who was nominated for a primetime Emmy for writing The Queen's Gambit, but he unfortunately lost to Michaela Cole for I May Destroy You, which is an HBO show. And since it's an HBO show, I will probably never watch it because I don't want to pay $16 a month to watch TV on top of everything else. So uh, I'm not saying anything bad about the show. I'm just saying I have no, I I can't watch it because I don't have, I'm not going to (laughs) pay. So uh, the reporter brings up next the idea that I mentioned about the duality where some people see meaning where there is none. And Beth says, what does that have to do with me? She is so, first of all, she's hostile toward the reporter understandably so but also she doesn't see the connection that the reporter's trying to make to sensationalize who beth is and so the reporter's like oh you know they go and they go hand in hand and uh at the end she's all you know genius and madness and this is where alma comes in and plays the protective mother role and kicks out the reporter and the reporter's like oh you should try bridge a lot of chess players like it and alma like is like i'll show you to the door and then she looks at beth and she rolls her eyes it's just the sweetest mother daughter moment uh but then while they're at dinner and alma's reading this report that has come out she's reading it to beth and all of a sudden she coughs and she cannot see the word she gets confused and so this is 
foreshadowing that it's not just about alcohol, but Beth, who's a teenager, uh, is upset about the article, right? So because she says it's mostly about her being a girl, she's like, it doesn't mention Mr. Scheibel. It doesn't mention that I, you know, use this cool technique. Um, but then Alma keeps coughing while she's drinking, and Beth asks Alma, did you ever think it's the drinking that makes you sick? And Alma basically says, I've been flirting around with alcohol for such a long time. It's more than time that I consummate the relationship. And this, the fact that Alma's so dismissive of the idea is more foreshadowing. So it if you're looking at it up to this point, and you're like, oh, it's alcoholism. The confusion and the coughing would make you think maybe it's something else. And of course, I know what it is. And if you've watched the show, the whole show, um, you know what it is as well. Sorry about that. So then this really weird scene happens, which I'm not opposed to weird scenes. I think they're interesting. I like unique things that show the reader something without directly showing them. But this is definitely an artistic type of endeavor. And not all writers can pull this off when they first start writing. So just remember, like, if you want to be strange, if you want to be evocative, you kind of need to get the writing experience under your belt before you try something like what uh, Scott Frank does right here. So... Beth finally goes back to school, and while she's there, her former bully, who I don't know her name, I'm not going to look up her name, I'm just calling her the bully from now on and forever, although this is the last episode she's in, I believe, um, Beth gets invited by the bully to her house to pledge for the apple pies, which is the math club that we learned about in the last episode. And so the bully, uh, so Beth comes, and I was like, wow, you're in the magazine, etc. And they're kind of impressed. But then, of course, the bully decides that they want to knock Beth down a notch. And she asks her about the boys there and insinuates that uh, basically that Beth is, like, sleeping around. But Beth doesn't understand that that's what she's doing. And so she says something, and all the girls laugh. And then they turn on the TV and start singing along. And Beth is like, I'm going to go to the bathroom. But really, she's not going to the bathroom. She doesn't fit in. Like, that's the theme of this episode, I feel. That she's not like everyone else. And so this song comes on about, you know, the one I long to kiss, the one I long to love. And Beth is standing there in front of the bully's dad's alcohol collection. And she grabs a bottle of a, what I assume is scotch or whiskey because it has that caramel color. Not too caramely, so probably ageless or sorry, fewer than uh, 10 years is what would be my guess is. Um, because my husband and his brother both collect whiskey and I'm learning a lot more about it. And so... She takes it and she goes to her house. She gets some of the tranquilizers. She washes them down with the alcohol. And the song begins to play louder and louder about kissing and wanting. And so Beth's lying in bed. She's all sweaty. And you just see this image of the shadow of the queen overtaking her. Um, basically as if she's going to have sex with the queen and this is to show that Beth's real true passion is chess, and that's taking the place in her life for romance or a sexual pursuit. 
And that is also one of the themes of this episode. And we're going to, we're getting really close to getting there. This moment where you're just like, ah, you cringe a little bit. Um, But okay, so next what happens is Beth goes to Las Vegas and she sees Towns, whose first name is Kentucky, which I think is interesting, who is friendly and offers to do a piece on her for the paper. He's there for chess review and uh she he's like oh well i could do a piece for your that and she's like i was on the cover last month dude and so he's like oh yeah okay he's like well you know i could do half page on you for our local paper it's not as fancy but and she's all oh yeah mm -hmm." and she's really eager because he says i have a camera up in my room i have chessboards up in my room and you can tell she's thinking i am about to get deflowered for a just because I want to use that term. All right, so she's, like, consciously going up with him into his hotel room. And when she gets up there, he starts taking pictures of her. And she's on the floor near the bed where the chess set is after being at the window. Like, he's, like, moved towards that. And he's, like, getting more and more interested. You could see, like, he's studying her through the lens. And he says to her, you've grown up, Harmon. You've even gotten good-looking. And they flirt about their names. Like, they're full-on flirting. And then he moves closer for a close-up with the camera. And he's starting to breathe heavily. You can hear it. And he touches her hair. And just then, Roger comes in. And everyone's like, dude, who's Roger? And we don't know. We haven't met Roger. But here's the insinuation, right? Roger comes in. He changes. Towns is obviously sharing a room with him. And there's one bed And when we go to the next shot where we see Beth and Alma, they're in a room with two beds. So there's a reason that Towns and Roger only have one bed in their room. And obviously, that is something that Beth is thinking about. So Roger comes in and one bed with Roger equals a sad Beth. So you can see she's like, okay, obviously this is not happening and they play chess. And when she goes back to her room... Alma's like, wow, you were gone for a long time. What did you do? And she's all, play chess. And she's all, is that all? And then Beth is like, that's all. Like, dang, I really wanted to do stuff with Towns. But he's obviously with Roger. And I'm super disappointed. I'm sad. Because you can tell from the very first time that Beth sees Towns that she likes him. And he's nice. And he's cute. And, you know, he's like a chess expert. He's all the things that she would like. Right? Um, But so he's with someone else. So that sucks for her. And Alma's like, can you get me a beer? And then she pours some. This is, once again, more drinking. And then she is like, oh, I bet you've never tried a beer before to Beth. And so she's like, oh, you can try it. And Beth, like, chugs the rest of the bottle of beer. And she's like, I want another one. And Alma's like, I don't think you should. And she's all, but I want one. And she's like, okay, well, if you're getting one, get me another one. Like, yes. So this is, I mean, Alma is definitely consummating her relationship with alcohol at this point, which is important because of something that's going to happen later. So Beth finally admits to uh, uh, to Alma that Borgoff is the one that scares her. She's not scared of Benny. But then they run into each other. Benny and Beth run into each other. And Benny basically has forgotten that he ever met Beth. He doesn't remember meeting her in Cincinnati. She brings it up and he's like, I'll take your word for it. And then he says, oh, you shouldn't have done this when you played Beltic. And she's all, what? I don't care. And he's like, just, you know, figure it out. She's all, show me. He's all, I don't have time. I have to go. And she's and he's like, just, you know, do it, figure it out. And she's all, I don't want to figure it out. But then she goes. And of course she does set up the board and looks at what he says. 
and she realizes that he was right. And she's so demoralized. She's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. Um, so she's just like he's in her head. Right. And like she doesn't realize that's what he's doing, but that is what he's doing. And there's a, a nice little throwback here in the scene where she tips over her toothbrush cup and gets some tranquilizers out uh, and takes them, and that's exactly what she did in the Methuen home. Is she used to hide her pills in her toothbrush cup. That's a little nod. We would call that a throwback. And people who are paying attention when they're reading your story really love that kind of thing if you don't do it too often. So it's just like a little snack of remembrance that makes the reader happy. Okay, so Beth and Benny are going to play each other, right? They're playing. And instead of showing them playing, Beth is recounting it to Alma. I mean, they show them for like a second, but then you don't know what's going to happen. And you see that she's describing it to Alma. And Benny basically forced an exchange of queens, which caused uh, Beth's strategy to backfire. I'm not a chess person, you guys. I admitted that in the first episode. But that's what happened. But you probably understand better than I do. Um, but then you see this shot of Mr. Scheibel saying, you resign now, which is from the first episode. And she, Beth resigns, and uh, Benny says, you know, tough game. And so we find out that, you know, Benny had already had two draws, so they're going to share the championship. They're, they're going to share the money. They're going to be co-champions, which Alma says is pretty common because she's inquired about it. That's what kind of person she is. She always wants to know what's going on, which I think is something that's very likable about her. Um, but so when Alma is talking to Beth about all this, she's like, I know she's... <laughs> Yeah, Beth, like, completely acts out, which is great because this is what a mother-daughter pair would do. So Beth is like, well, you don't know anything about chess. And then Alma's like, well, I know what it's like to lose. And then Beth is like, I bet you do. And you're just like, dang, Beth, you're being mean right now. But then Alma says, and now so do you. And you can see there's that teachable moment, right, where she's like, Alma knows that this is making Beth uncomfortable, but it's something that she needs to know. It's part of life. And we see that as the two are leaving, Towns comes out and he like wants to talk to Beth. And all she says to him is, give my best to Roger. And he's all Beth. And then she gets in the car and we see as she's leaving with Alma that in the car they're holding hands, which is a sweet moment. Okay, but we also see that Beth in her mind has lost two things. She's lost Towns to Roger, which she didn't know about Roger, obviously. And she also lost the championship to Benny because in her mind, sharing doesn't count as winning. So we end with a sad song and Beth and Alma holding hands in the car as they drive away. And the emphasis and the theme of this episode with the sexuality and the otherness and all of that stuff is that Beth feels alone in the world. She feels alone when she's in the room full of people, girls who are her peers from the Apple Pie Club, and she feels alone because she thinks that Towns will understand her, but obviously he's chosen someone else. Woo! That was some fast talking. I hope you can see that this story is complicated in the best way, and they simplify where they can, but there are a lot of tips and tricks you can use in your writing. Surround your main character with likable people. Show moments of learning for the reader without telling them, but showing them through things that feel natural, like Beth's conversation with 
the reporter, who I said is the foil because she shows us opposite of what Beth is, right? Because she's projecting all of her own stuff onto Beth. And Beth's like, no, lady, that's not the case. So this episode is really good. And in the next part, part number four, we're going to get into the heart of the story, the middle of the story. This is where the, um, you know, plot point number two is going to happen. And we're going to talk about that. And I'm going to break down everything for you. But I hope you understand why this show was nominated for so many Emmy Awards, why so many 62 million viewers are obsessed with it and watched the whole thing and interacted with it, right? I mean, I don't know if they watched the whole thing because Netflix won't share if that's how they gather their metrics. But, you know, for 62 million people to watch any part of your thing, you have to be pretty pumped. And it has to be really good. So next time you're thinking about your character, think about all these tools, flashbacks, foreshadowing, uh, foils, likability, relatability, right? Because a lot of us feel alone in whatever we're experiencing. And that's something that's relatable that people will like reach out and cling on to Beth because she can understand how they feel. That's what you're looking for. That is what is going to take your story to the next level. And as always, thank you for listening slash watching. I am so excited to be going through this real story breakdown with you for the Queen's Queen's Gambit, and I will talk to you next week. Happy writing. This has been another episode of the Writing Expensive Words podcast with me, your host, Kristen Spencer. I'd love to hear your amazing writing thoughts and questions from your awesome writing brain. You can find me on Instagram at kristen.n.spencer or at literary symmetry or you can email me at kns at literarysymmetry.com this podcast is funded by awesome listeners like you if you'd like to support this podcast and keep it rolling you can head over to www.patreon.com forward slash expensive words you can keep all of my hosting and software needs going for the show by donating less than what it costs for one fancy cup of tea a month And to be eligible to join writing coaching calls with me, check out the $12 a month sponsorship. You will get to ask me questions live about the story of your heart once a month and meet other cool writers. Thanks again for listening and happy writing.